Special thanks to Noah, News Over Audio, for sponsoring this episode. Noah is an audio app that allows you to listen to articles from premium publishers like The Economist, Bloomberg, and many more. Check out the link in the episode description for one month free of Noah Premium. Welcome to Many Happy Returns, where we aim to make you a better investor. I'm Roman. And I'm Michael. 2021 was a record year for initial public offerings. More than 3,000 companies listed on global stock markets for the first time, raising over $600 billion in the process. But since going public, many companies have seen their stock price plunge, leaving investors to wonder, are IPOs a good investment? And in today's dumb question of the week, we ask, am I missing out by not investing in private companies? All right, let's get into it. 2021 was a record-breaking year for IPOs. Just in the US, more than 1,000 companies tapped public markets for the first time, raising over $300 billion, which is more than the previous three years combined. But since then, Roman, things have gone a little shaky. (laughs) Yeah, because I guess, look, if you're going to sell your company, would you like to sell it at a high price or a low price? So, you know, if markets are going down, then the appetite to sell companies is obviously going to dry up. Market conditions is what people describe it as. But really, it means you can't sell your company at an overpriced valuation. So was the hot year for IPOs in 2021 just the same phenomenon that we saw with meme stocks and growth stocks doing so well? Was it all wrapped up in that feeding frenzy? Yeah, that's definitely part of it. Now, if you think about what normally happens, right? So there'll be a normal demand for companies to go public. Imagine that like a kind of background driving force for companies to list. And there'll be a certain number of companies every year that want to do that. However, you have to overlay on that market conditions. It's kind of like, you know, making the final ascent up on Everest. People wait at the, I don't know what you call it, the base camp for the kind of favourable conditions to come along. And then everyone makes a push for the top when the conditions kind of clear up. But of course, at the moment, there's a massive storm at the summit and uh, people are kind of back at base camp. And there's just dead bodies littered along the route to the top. (laughs) And a lot of toilet paper, I've heard, yeah. So, you know, I think at the moment, there's obviously going to be a holding back period. But probably next year, there'll be a pickup again and we'll make another run for the summit. But you're definitely right that company founders and the investors in private companies want to exit and list on the stock market when they're going to get the best price right. So I've heard it said that the number of companies IPOing is kind of a good indicator of where we are in the economic cycle. Because, for example, the previous record year for listings was 2007, right? Just before the financial crisis. And I remember when I was a strategist, you know, it was one of the things that you'd monitor the sentiment. Another thing is mergers and acquisitions. That's another kind of sentiment indicator. And when people are kind of euphoric, that's when you get a lot of M&A. IPOs are exactly the same. They sense that they're going to get a very good price. And from the point of view of the buyer, that's us, that gives the opposite signal, of course. (laughs) Yeah, and I think it's clear with what's happened to the companies that listed last year. They've generally had a tough time of it since. They've been the ones most affected by the sell-off. So I read that if you exclude the SPACs, which, you know, were those special purpose acquisition vehicles, which were a kind of case on their own, ignore them and look at all the other companies that went public in the US last year. They've sunk on a weighted average basis, 44%. And in fact, there's an ETF called the Renaissance IPO ETF, which tracks companies which are newly listed. 
And that thing has absolutely tanked. It's down by about 50% since its peaks at the beginning of this year. Yeah, only 10% roughly of the companies that listed in the US last year are trading above the IPO price. So look, there was a period of euphoria. A lot of the companies that listed were also growth stocks. So if you look at the style of equity, which is mostly what was issued, it was all growth stocks. Now, you'd normally expect that. I mean, if you're going to be raising capital for growth, then by definition, you're a growth company. So, you know, I think that was very much the case at the end of last year. Yeah, I think it's definitely true that the type of company that's listing has changed dramatically. So I read a piece of research by NASDAQ, actually, which said that in 1980, unprofitable companies were only 20% of those going through the IPO process, whereas now 80% of the companies going to IPO are unprofitable. It's almost like a badge of honour, you know, are you making a profit? No. Okay, great. Let's list. (laughs) Time to get investors' money. That's right. (laughs) Which is great if you can get people to pay up for that. But, you know, I'd just be more cautious. This is probably why you won't be surprised to hear this, Michael. I wouldn't be queuing up to buy newly issued stocks. Yeah, so the other interesting thing is the age of the companies that are IPOing actually now tends to be older than it was in the past. So in the 80s, the average age of the companies was roughly around eight years, whereas you look at it more recently and it's gone up to around 10 years. So it has become sort of a little bit more mature companies, even though they're still unprofitable. I don't know if that's interesting. (laughs) I think that is interesting. I wouldn't have expected that. You know, I'd have expected these companies to be newly formed tech companies, which haven't been around that long. But I guess a lot of them exist in the kind of private market before they decide to list, because they can go through several rounds of VC funding without becoming public. And I think the route to profitability is just longer. It's much more tolerated now to stay unprofitable for 10 plus years and just grow your user base, for example, if you're a software company. I think they call it blitz scaling. (laughs) The good marketing term they've come up with then. (laughs) You throw capital at a company, hope it scales, becomes dominant, and then you can go public. Everyone wants to be Amazon, right? But I guess the question is, regardless of which companies are listing, are they a good investment? Do IPOs outperform or underperform? Yeah, I mean, if you're going to buy in a period of euphoria, clearly at that point, you're probably going to pay for a company and you're going to pay too much. I think the difficulty is that when a stock comes to market, once it's trading on the stock exchange, you've got almost a minute-by-minute way of gauging what it's worth, which is what people are willing to pay. As it comes to market, it's a huge unknown. It's really difficult. And, you know, we'll talk about the process in a minute. But how do you know what something's worth? It's more than a philosophical question. It's a practical question. And that's the problem. You know, a lot of these companies find out in a quite brutal way that they're not worth what people thought they were. I mean, it's like asking your mum, you know, is Michael a good boy? She'd say, yeah, he's great. My mum would have thought I was great, but ask someone else and they might not agree. Everyone thinks you're great, Roman. Don't worry about that. (laughs) Not if you read the YouTube comments. (laughs) So you mentioned the process about bringing a company to the public markets. What does that actually look like? Well, I used to teach a course and it was about how IPOs happen. And this is at an investment bank. So I could actually get the people who did the issuance to come and talk about it. The way they taught it was brilliant. It was to let the class actually pretend they were the IBD department, the investment banking department within the investment bank. So this confuses a lot of people. IBD is called investment banking. 
But those are the people who issue new capital, either in the form of bonds or equity within an investment bank. And they're like a different breed. Think about them as a kind of very sharp suited, thoughtful, ivory tower kind of people. Slickest of the slick. The slickest of the slick. And, you know, they have the sharpest suits and the best educational history. Whereas you look at the trading and salespeople and they're basically knuckle draggers, right? In comparison. So- <laughs> you can say all this now you've left. <laughs> That's right. You know, you go to a trading floor and it's like a zoo. It smells, it's noisy. You go to IBD and it's like you've entered a library. It's bizarre. Anyway, these people would come and give a introduction to how it works. Essentially, what they're doing is resolving a conflict of interest. The company wants to issue their capital at as high a price as possible. So if they're deciding on a share price, they'll aim high, whereas the investors want a price which is as low as possible. Now, unfortunately, from the investment bank's point of view is that let's say they price it too high. The day of the issue comes up and there's just no demand for it. So what they have to do is cut the price. And unfortunately, the investment bank, the one which is actually helping with the issuance, would have to buy all of the stocks up front and then sell them to the public. Yeah, they're the underwriter, aren't they? Exactly. The underwriter takes the risk. So in that sense, they don't want to be left with lots of stock, which has to be written down. So this suggests to me that the investment bank's incentive is to have as low a price as possible and just flog all the stock, (laughs) ensure they're not on the hook for anything. Well, yes, but the other important thing is that they get a really big fee. Some people say this is like 3%, you know, maybe even 5% of the amount of capital which is issued. I'd say more normal issuance fees would be around 2%. You know, you imagine you've raised a billion for a company. You're going to be raising, I don't know, 20 million off the back of that. And that's work done by a couple of senior people in the IBD department and an army of juniors who have had no sleep for the last two weeks because they've been doing the pitch deck. So that's a pretty small team, which actually does the mechanics of it. Yeah. So from the investment bank's point of view, it's extremely high value and profitable work. Hugely profitable when there's lots of volume. They'll be going out there encouraging companies to issue. And from their point of view, it's a fairly low risk business, but very profitable. So they talk to the company, they say, it's a great time to come to market, we'll get you a great price, we'll go around, we'll talk to all the institutional investors, get them all signed up so there's not much risk here for you. And then the big day or the big week arrives, what happens? So usually what happens is there's a whole kind of pre-sales process. So for example, let's say it's an investment bank, usually they have a wealth management arm and they'll also have a prime brokerage division So the wealth management arm will be able to market the new shares to all of the ultra high net worth clients who are clients of the bank. And they'll say, oh, yes, we've got this amazing new company coming to market. Would you be interested in an allocation? So it might be a family office or whatever. How much of these conversations happen on a golf course? (laughs) I don't know, but I suspect wine would be involved. But the other groups would be the prime brokerage business. So this would be hedge funds, which essentially have the investment bank as a kind of infrastructural partner. So a hedge fund would usually borrow money from the investment bank and it would also trade through the investment bank. So, you know, they'll also offer to hedge funds some allocation for the company. But the key point here is that retail investors aren't really involved in the process, right? 
it's kind of pre-sold to all these institutions. And it's hopefully, from the investment bank's point of view, fully subscribed or oversubscribed, right? Yeah. So if you're a retail investor, it's kind of hard, almost impossible to buy into IPOs a lot of the time. Yeah, you'll be at the back of the queue. And in terms of information, they'll be much better clued up, these institutional investors, as to the true value of the company. So I think this is not really kind of retail investors' game. And often the retail investors will end up getting burnt with some of these deals. Yeah, because by the time you get in there to buy it, you're going to be confronted with potentially a lot of people looking to offload the stock. Yeah, there'll be a lot of volatility in the first few minutes after an issue first goes to market. And there'll be certain people who are trying to reduce that volatility. And there are things like lock-in periods, which are supposed to stop that volatility. Now, the idea here is that if you're an existing shareholder of the company, you're not allowed to sell for some period of time after the IPO. It's often 180 days. That lock-in period ensures that you're not going to flood the market with lots of new shares, which would push down the share price. But that would suggest that 180 days after the listing, you're going to see a big drop in the price of the stock as the lock-in period ends and everyone starts selling. You know, to finally cash out after working at 10 years at this crappy tech company, now's the time I can sell all my stock and buy my mansions. <laughs> and that often happens. I mean, it's certainly something to monitor. If a company's been issued for 180 days, one example is Facebook. You know, 180 days after it was IPO'd, the price absolutely tanked because of the lock-in period. So I think that's certainly something people have to be wary of. It's weird that that's not just sort of priced in and arbitraged away, right? Well, you know how these things are. If you've got the opportunity to sell, you probably will. All I mean is it's unusual in markets to find predictable events that still cause big price moves. It's not predictable. I mean, often you get an IPO, lock and period ends, and there's not a huge impact. You know, I mean, it really depends on whether people think, and the people I'm talking about are the ones who actually hold the shares before the lock and period ends, the people who are locked in. If they know the company's probably not worth as much as the market thinks it is, those are the ones where you'll get a big sell-off. And you don't know that, right? You don't know whether Bill Gates is going to sell. <laughs> so that's the difficulty. So it doesn't always happen. That's a problem. So you mentioned this is extremely lucrative for investment banks. Is that why last year we saw companies coming to the market in different ways sometimes and avoiding the IPO process and doing what's called direct listings? Yeah, so direct listing isn't exactly the same as an IPO because the primary purpose of an IPO is issuance of new shares, whereas a direct listing is when existing shareholders within the company, usually shareholder owners or VCs, venture capital companies, which have taken a share of the company while scaling it up, those people are then able to sell their stocks in a direct listing on the stock market. So really, it's just a chance for them to get out. So the purpose isn't capital issuance, new capital. It's just to create liquidity for the stocks and let the founders realise some of their wealth, which to that point has been kind of theoretical. So I guess with an IPO then, when the company is actually raising capital and not just paying off existing shareholders, the question is, what are they going to use that capital for, right? Because it could be used for lots of things. Now, if it's a company that's growing aggressively, organically, so let's imagine it's a coffee shop and they're opening up new branches everywhere because everybody wants it. Well, there it's a very clear use case, right? They need the capital to open up new stores and to expand the franchise. Sometimes companies issue stock and get capital in order to buy other companies. So it could be for an acquisition, building up a war chest, that's what they call it, where ultimately they're going to grow by buying their competitor. 
and expand their market reach. So those both sound like productive uses of capital. I guess if I was an investor looking at an IPO, I'd be more concerned if they were just using it to pay down debt or pay off staff and things like that. Yeah, I mean, imagine it's a zombie company, right? So interest rates have increased like they have now. And suddenly the cost of rolling over their bond debt becomes really expensive. So let's say they've got debt which is about to mature and they realise that there's no way they're going to be able to pay the coupons on newly issued debt because the rates they're going to have to pay now are much higher. Well, if they're doing a share issuance in order to kind of buy back some of that debt, well, that's a worry because this could be a company which is about to go bust. It's a zombie company. Yeah, if banks and bond investors are turning them down all over the place, I don't want to be an equity investor coming in just to take their place. (laughs) Because, you know, if a company goes bust and you're an equity investor, you will lose 100% of your investment unless you can sell before that happens. So IPOs are kind of the most exciting thing, really, aren't they, that happens on the stock market? This brand new shiny company that you couldn't buy before as a retail investor, now you can buy it and people do buy it. And it's like a birth, you know, like when you have a new member of the family, it's very exciting and then you get to meet the new baby and it's all kind of thrilling. But then, you know, when they're 18 years old, not so exciting to have the kids come around. It's, it takes a little bit of the shine off once you get to know them. And sometimes even the baby itself, eventually you realise it's just an ugly baby, this Coinbase baby, I don't <laughs> want this baby. <laughs> and I think the stats show that if you're investing in IPOs, you're probably going to underperform the market. So again, from NASDAQ, some research which showed that if you look three years after the listing date, almost two thirds of IPOs underperform the market, with most of them more than 10% behind the market's return. So that's a big underperformance in the three years after the company goes public. And it's for the same reasons that investments usually underperform, which is that you paid too much up front. So I think having a really calm appraisal of what the company is truly worth. Although it's very difficult when it comes to market for the first time to have that appraisal. But you've just got to think, is this really worth what people are saying? How much hype is priced into this? And, you know, what are the prospects of this company? So if you see a company like Canva, right, this is like a, an app for producing pretty graphics. It's an Australian company. Yeah, we made our um, podcast logo in that, which I now have got really tired of. So if anyone <laughs> wants to give us a new podcast logo, <laughs> feel free. <laughs> but Canva has a valuation, which I think at some point it was like 40 billion. And this is just an app for making graphics. It's just like ridiculously high. But if you do pay too much, and it is like a lottery ticket payoff, you know, we've discussed this in the past, there is a cognitive bias, which does make people overpay when they have these lottery ticket payoffs. Yeah, I think this is the classic lottery ticket, isn't it? Because you could buy the next Google or Apple or Amazon, but most likely you won't be. Yeah. There's an even better statistic, I think, which is if you track companies over their entire history, right? So from issuance, from birth, if you like all the way to death. And death can come in various forms for a company. It can be acquisition or it could be bankruptcy. But either way, if you track companies over that birth to death period, the vast majority make a loss, which is kind of shocking, I always think. You mean as an investor, we'd have been better off just not buying the stock? Yeah. They end up at a price which was lower than their issuance price. Is that including dividends along the way? Just like total return is negative. I don't know if it's total return. It's definitely true for price. 
But of course, a lot of companies may not pay much dividend anyway, particularly for the US. I mean, it does make sense because when I've looked at stats, a huge amount of the performance of the stock market comes from just a few firms at the top. I mean, there have been some interesting papers, haven't there, which have looked at the performance of IPOs, both in the short term, so a year after listing, and then how do they perform in the very long term? Now, there are no surprises, you know, long after a company's issued, of course, it behaves like any other stock, because it becomes just another stock. Yeah, every stock is an IPO stock at some point. <laughs> That's right. We've all got mothers and fathers, right? <laughs> so, and then after that, obviously, it becomes just a matter of style and the type of stock. So there was a nice paper which looked at 7,500-ish US IPOs between 75 and 2014. And it looked at the performance relative to the market and various other factors. And what they found was that the IPO underperformance disappears once you correct for things such as those factors. Like, is it a growth stock? Is it momentum which is making the value go up? If you correct for those factors, then a lot of the underperformance disappears yeah, I think it's as you say, they're not magic, right? The market is broadly efficient and they perform like other companies that are equivalent. It's just that IPO companies tend to skew more in a certain direction. And at the moment, that's been, yeah, growthy, techy kind of stocks, which have had a really tough time this year. And you've got to give the investment bankers a bit of credit. You know, I mean, they do have an idea of how something should be priced. They do hundreds of these deals and they have an incentive not to overprice it, like we said. So it is interesting that a lot of firms are having such a tough time after listing. And if you look at the data, it really does back this up. One of the resources we use to research this topic is Noah, News Over Audio, who are kindly sponsoring this episode. Noah is an audio app that gives you quality, in-depth analysis and opinion from multiple perspectives. Their dedicated team of expert editors handpick the best articles to bring you this story behind the news. Noah curates articles from premium publishers like The Economist, Bloomberg and The Washington Post into dedicated series that guide listeners through the story. In fact, to research this podcast, we listened to the series Why Firms Are Failing Post-IPO, which really got us up to speed. Noah is available on mobile, desktop, smart speakers and in your car so you can listen wherever you are. Thanks again to Noah, which is available for $7.99 a month. If you look in the episode description, you'll find an exclusive link to access one month free of NOAA Premium. So there was one study that I saw which said that there is significant underperformance for IPO firms in the first year after they go public. But then after that, the market sort of got used to pricing them maybe. And yeah, once you account for all those factors, there's virtually no underperformance thereafter, which would suggest to me just wait, be patient. You don't have to buy them on the first day they go to market, right? Come back in a year or two. They'll still be there. Or even better, I mean, if you're an index investor, you never even have to worry about this because all of that process just goes on in the background. Yeah, companies are issued, companies go bust, but you don't really care. I mean, I am an index investor, so that's exactly what <laughs> happens in my portfolio. <laughs> but, you know, it's unfashionable now. Everyone thinks they're the next Warren Buffett. And talking of Warren Buffett, <laughs> he had some fantastic quotes, as always, on IPOs. And he's basically making the point that they are so difficult to invest in because the pricing works in such a different way to how we're used to on the public stock market. And he's got a lovely metaphor, hasn't he, to do with the housing market in Omaha. Everything's always to do with farms or housing in Omaha with Warren Buffett and his metaphors. <laughs> but it's lovely to kind of like a homespun wisdom. Let me just read out the quote. It's just brilliant. 
an IPO situation more closely approximates a negotiated deal. I mean, the seller decides when to come to market in most cases, and they don't pick a time necessarily that's good for you, i.e. the buyer. So he continues that negotiated transactions are very hard to get bargains in. And then he comes on to the metaphor. If you take the houses in Omaha, somebody that lives next door to someone who sold their house for $80,000, and let's say their house is more or less comparable, they're not going to sell it for $50,000. It just doesn't happen. And that's what happens in negotiated sales. Whereas the same does not happen in an auction market, which is more like the stock market. If you have a whole bunch of different owners of one house in Omaha and they all own a very small percentage, he says they might sell at damn near any price. And that's where Warren Buffett is looking for the little bargains he can get. (laughs) It's just a great metaphor. You know, you've always got to think, what are the incentives of the people selling to you? And are you going to get a good deal out of the process? So as we said, the market last year in 2021 was ridiculous with a record-breaking amount of companies going through the IPO process and raising a record amount of capital. Whereas this year in 2022, the volumes have dropped by a huge amount. So the volume of companies coming to market in the US, for example, is 95% down from this point last year. So this is kind of what you'd expect. I mean, if you look at any risk-taking activity, whether it's mergers and acquisitions, whether it's SPAC deals, effectively the market's shut down. But there is one exception, which is China, where IPOs on their mainland exchanges have actually risen a lot this year and are up to $58 billion so far in 2022, which is the largest ever for such a period. So they're having their boom time in 2022. It's interesting. You've got a nice graph here, which nobody can see, which is the growth and decline. So China up 44%, but Hong Kong, US, Europe, all down by between 85% and 92%. So what's going on here? Well, the thing to bear in mind is that China has effectively just had a large, well, a colossal capital market shut to it for some of its companies. And that's because of the issuance rules, which the US has now imposed on Chinese companies. So we did cover this last week, didn't we, around being delisted? And if there's state-owned enterprises, particularly if they have any kind of military connections, they're effectively locked out of the US market. So these companies can only issue in their domestic market or certain other markets around the world, which are fairly restricted. So is that the reason for the Chinese market doing so well with IPOs? There's just like a homecoming of firms like China Mobile this year. Well, it's China Mobile and Energy Producer, so that's CNOOC. Both of those have listed in 2022. And they raised pretty substantial amounts of money, so 8.6 billion and 5 billion respectively for those two. And there is a phenomenon in China, which is known as the Chinese national team. I don't know if you're familiar with what happened in 2015. No, go on. So the idea was that the yuan had devalued hugely and Chinese equity markets basically went into meltdown. So something had to be done. And there was something called the Chinese national team. So this is like a task force, if you like, where state regulators, state-owned securities firms, and that's actually quite a lot of security firms, brokers, investment funds, banks, they all pool their capital and buy domestic large caps. And that props up the market. Of course, it's not real buying. It's not true price discovery like you'd expect on a stock market. But it does prop up the market when there's a time of crisis. Is that not just a bailout by any other name? Yeah, I mean, it is a bailout, but it's kind of behind the scenes, although everyone kind of knows it's going on. And I think by some estimates, the national team owned about 6% of the market 
after this buying activity in 2015. So some people think that they deployed about a trillion yuan, about $158 billion during that semi-bailout. And you think that might be at play again? Well, I think that definitely helped. I think it would never have happened that those companies would be undersubscribed or that the IPOs would have failed. And I suspect some of the buying would have been encouraged, shall we say. So can an IPO actually fail then? Like completely fail to list or? It wouldn't fail. What would happen would be that the underwriter would just be left with a lot of the stocks and simply have to take a hit. And it wouldn't be pleasant for the underwriter, obviously, because it shows that they overpriced the deal. Heads would roll as a result. But it's a very unusual for that to happen, I have to say. The IBD people will be very good at sensing the mood music of markets, but also what people were willing to pay. They don't get their slick suits for nothing. No, absolutely. <laughs> so if China is seeing record activity in IPOs, at the other end of the spectrum, I think you've got London and the UK, where we've gone from the primary market in Europe for companies to IPO to kind of a backwater. It's not really surprising. You know, that's one of the consequences of Brexit. We're not seen as access to European markets anymore, which is the way we were perceived before, I think. Yeah, and I think we've just had a string of flops of companies listing for the first time. So Deliveroo, the Hut Group, Wise, they've all listed recently and their price has just cratered after they've gone public. And the big one which everyone's talking about, but which actually hasn't come to market, is Arm, the chip designer you know, it was said that it was going to potentially list in London, but then SoftBank said, no, 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 we're going to list it in New York. SoftBank is the primary shareholder. Yeah. But then the UK government's saying, no, it's a national security concern. Right. For God's sake, the company's called Arm. Let's <laughs> keep it in the UK. <laughs> It'll probably end up listing on both, if I had to guess. Yeah, maybe, maybe. I think there'll be such a strong incentive that they'll create for it to list in London that, you know, they won't be able to resist but I think it's a sign that, you know, we're so desperate that we have to kind of beg for a company to list here, whereas people actually are flocking to New York, particularly tech companies, to list there. And I think we've said before, this is a reason why the UK stock market has become stagnant. is because we haven't had this fresh pipeline of new exciting firms. We've been stuck with the old dinosaurs. So UK IPOs went from 40% of the European total before Brexit, and it's gone all the way down to 30% now. And the Competition and Markets Authority, who's responsible for regulating the stock exchange in London, is looking at all sorts of kind of rule changes and wheezes to make it more enticing for firms to list in London. But as yet, it hasn't really made a difference. But I think once the company's listed, who's going to buy the stock? If it's in London, people will be looking for a big dividend because that's the way the London market likes it. And if you're a growth company, a tech company, well, you're not going to be paying out a big dividend. Hopefully you'll be offering a lot of capital growth, which UK investors typically aren't interested in. So you can see why they don't want to list here. The whole incentive which investors in the UK are after, which is dividends, are just not what people are looking for. It has to change. Hopefully it will. You know, I think it won't always be like this. Or at least if it was always like this, then effectively the UK will become even smaller. So as an investor, if we were interested in investing in a company that's about to IPO, given all the caveats we've just said, but we're convinced this is the company for us, can we actually do it? Because we've said, oh, it's institutional investors that usually get first dibs. Well, one way to get invited to do this is to make a billion pounds because 
then you'll get a high net worth <laughs> investor's first dibs. Yeah, and then you can throw it away on an IPO. Brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> some of it. But some brokers apparently are trying to offer this as an incentive for their clients. Yeah, and often they'll ask for you to subscribe to their premium brokerage account, which, you know, let's pay me an extra fee so I can invest in the companies that are going to underperform the market on average. <laughs> it's not a compelling thing, but people want to do it, so why not? I mean, it's worth saying that not all will underperform. Some of them are underpriced and actually go on to do very well. So, you know, I mean, it could be a good deal. Oh, yeah, when pension craft comes to the market, you're going to have loads <laughs> of people subscribing to your IPO. <laughs> I'll be flogging it on YouTube, Natch, yeah. You'll be listing over in the US, I know what you're like. Oh yeah, it'll be in the Nasdaq, no question. (laughs) (laughs) But maybe for a retail investor, the more normal way to get exposure to recent IPOs is through an ETF. And in fact, in Europe, there are two ETFs. We mentioned already the IPO ETF in the United States. In the UK, you've got access to two ETFs. I think they both track the same index. It's the IPOX Schuster US 100 Performance Index. And I think the usual problem with these thematic funds is that they're quite expensive. So the fee for both of the funds which are available for UK investors and European investors is 0.65% per year. So very high. So you better love the theme. Yeah, I guess the only attraction for me really would be if I thought they were wildly oversold. So it could be the one that recovers from a period of real despair stronger than the broad market. It's just growth stocks, really, isn't it, by another name? Yeah, often. I mean, certainly in this period that we're currently finding ourselves in, that's the style which a lot of the issuance is. I mean, here's a question for you, Roman. We've said before that if you could always find companies which were going to underperform, you could then short them relative to the market and would outperform. Like, shorting negative alpha is just as good as having positive alpha. So if we know on average IPOs underperform, at least in the first year after issuance, can't we do a sort of clever hedge fund, long short trade, we go long the market, short IPO companies and be in profit? Well, you can bet that hedge funds do that. And, you know, things like the lockout period ending, you can bet they're going to know about that. If I know about it, everyone knows about it. (laughs) (laughs) But I think what's really important is to have a fundamental valuation model. And this is what most people lack and which a lot of institutional investors have. You know, they'll have an entire team which can throw all of their resources at working out what's the value of this company. You know, what's the true price, in our opinion? Even if you're wrong, at least you'll have a kind of anchor. Whereas for retail investors, it's just going to be a gut feeling, probably. But it's not the case that IPOs always underperform. Now, in recently, they've been some nasty horror stories, but more generally, I don't think it's true. So I think, you know, if you do short these things always, that's not going to work. I mean, I've often wondered if the reason IPOs are having a tough time in the immediate aftermath of them listing is because the IPO process itself is such a distraction. It involves so much of the company pulling together documents, changing all their accounting methods, getting ready for regulation, that surely you're distracted from running the actual business. A lot of people say that. For example, I think Elon Musk actually talked about SpaceX and taking it public, saying that, you know, it would be awful if we have a public company because it is a distraction. You're continually having to justify every development to your shareholders. And like you say, there's a lot of transparency that comes with it in terms of regular publication of the company accounts. 
And presumably some of your key staff who are incentivized by owning stock early on are now seeing the uh, the dollar signs in their eyes and it's only 180 days away. <laughs> so maybe they're not as uh, motivated as they once were. A big exodus is, is the problem, yeah. But I think, you know, coming back to the point about stock prices going down after an IPO, in fact, the opposite was the case when we had the height of the euphoria in 2021 and 2020, because, you know, a company would be listed, the share price would pop, and then, of course, the company would have raised a lot less capital than they could have at the higher price which it reached. Once the issue happens, it's no use to them if the share price rallies the next day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they're mad at the investment bankers. You're like, oh my God, you should have priced it twice as high as you did. Can you imagine that conversation? You should have known. You cost me my extra three houses. (laughs) But it's interesting now that IPOs are starting to dry up or have dried up massively. Will that result then in much lower investment banking profits? Certainly from that department. But of course, you know, banks get money from various sources. If there's no volatility in equity markets, that's a problem because, you know, if there's lots of trading, that's great for investment banks because you get the flow business, as it's called, where you get lots of trading going through the books and they make a certain amount per trade. So the flow business during a volatile period is usually going to pick up the slack. So they're always making money from somewhere. Hopefully. Unless you're Deutsche Bank. Ooh, or Credit Suisse. <laughs> <laughs> When it comes to investing in private companies, it's good to have a diverse range of opinions about what the company's worth. For example, hydrogen companies came up on Slack recently. So if you want to enter that discussion and talk about IPOs or any other investment topic, why not check out pensioncraft.com? Okay, so today's dumb question of the week is, am I missing out by not investing in private companies? So, Roman, we've talked a lot about IPOs, and that's the process, really, when private companies become public and available to everyone to buy. But should we really be waiting for that? What I'd worry about, I think, you know, if you're investing in a company which is not publicly listed on an exchange, is what's it really worth? And do you have an idea of what it's truly worth? Because if you don't, if you're just buying because it's a friend's company or somebody tipped you off, it was a good investment, then that's probably a really bad way of deciding how much to pay for it. And one of the problems is that if you don't observe what the company's worth on a stock market, then it could get marked down internally. So let's say that there's a collapse in the value of its assets. You're not going to know about that because they may not tell you about it and they don't have to tell you about it. So there is a lack of transparency. And just because something's not volatile, in other words, its price isn't continually changing, doesn't mean that its value hasn't fallen. It might have fallen very sharply, the value of its assets, and you wouldn't know about it. I think I've seen that said about private equity. The reported values are much less volatile than the stock market. But when you think about it, why on earth would that be the case? These are companies doing the same thing as publicly listed companies. I guess they must just not be marking them to market, as it's called, fairly. So when you get a big sell-off, I think in 2008, they didn't fall anywhere near the 50% that the broad market did. Or if you imagine it's like a massive real estate investment, which the company owns, you know, how do you price an entire shopping arcade or an entire shopping mall? You only know what it's worth when you sell it. So that's the problem. How do you price it? You can just look for comparable things and see how they've changed in price. But those comparable things will also be illiquid and traded infrequently. So let's imagine you've got an imaginary index. In fact, there is one 
of the value of private equity versus public equity. So in times of despair, what I'd expect to see is that the private index would be way above the public one because people think of it as being kind of safe, less volatile, and that somehow this is magically going to be better than a publicly traded company. In fact, that's exactly what happens. You know, 2000, 2008, the private index is way above the public one because it didn't tank so quickly. But sure enough, the two soon converge. I think that might be where we are right now with private equity managers not having marked down the value of their assets. We are starting to see them mark them down. The narrative I heard about why it might make sense to invest in private equity was that, as we said earlier, companies are coming to IPO later. They're slightly more mature than they used to be. And maybe the sort of arc of a company involves a very rapid early growth phase over its first decade of existing which is only available to private investors. And by the time it comes to the public market, like all the juicy early returns have been wrung from it. But what you have to offset that against is the high failure rate for very small companies. Because for every Amazon, you know, there's going to be a thousand companies which try to do the same thing but fail. So the chances of picking one, which is the Amazon, the unicorn, is very low. Once you factor in that failure rate, suddenly it becomes a much less attractive prospect. And I guess we're talking more about venture capital there than private equity. I guess private equity is more about buying mature companies that could be on the stock market. Well, anything which is unlisted, strictly speaking, is private equity. So whether it's an early startup or whether you're kind of putting in money as a VC, as an angel investor, it's kind of similar. I describe both as as private equity. I guess my other worry would be that the fees would be high. You know, I'm always whinging on about fees, but I still think that you're not going to get low-fee private equity investments. Somebody in the pipeline from your wallet to the company is going to be siphoning off pretty hefty fees, I suspect. Oh, of course. I mean, we can buy, as retail investors, like fund of funds, which look to invest in all the publicly listed private equity firms, if you know what I mean. So we're sort of one (laughs) level removed, but we can still get access to them. And those, I suspect, will also siphon off a lot in fees. Yeah, I mean, I've never found this as an attractive asset class. I mean, a lot of people will find that if they're in one of the big pension funds, a big slug of that will be allocated to private equity because I think that the people managing the pension fund have to show that they're not just buying, uh, you know, global index tracker and I could do that job. (laughs) (laughs) Who knows, Michael, maybe you will. But do you know what I mean? They have to like do something a little bit fancy with the money. And supposedly, you know, they'll have models which show all the diversification benefits and blah, blah, blah. Not just that, but in the UK, for example, they've lifted the cap on pension fees specifically so that they can invest in things like private equity, but also kind of infrastructure projects which are funded by private equity, which I think is a massive problem. That sounds very much like the Chinese national team to me for the UK. (laughs) Question is, is it good for us as investors to have them pushing our money into whatever infrastructure projects they want in the UK? It might be. I mean, they could pay off. So it could be argued that, you know, the investments would be okay. But I just think the whole kind of fee thing creates these kind of incentives for these private equity companies to just get on the gravy train to stand between, you know, the project and the investor and just siphon off large amounts in fees. I think it hurts investors. I was really upset by it, in fact. I mean, that's presumably why there's a distinction between public markets, which are available to retail investors, and private markets where they're not. Because 
regulators want to make sure the public isn't getting burned. Yeah, and that was the whole reason behind having all of these listing rules and all the other things which are supposed to protect investors, which just aren't available for private markets, which is why mostly it's kind of high net worth people who invest in these things. I think there's always the temptation on the part of people, though, to think, oh, the grass is always greener. I can see these really rich billionaires investing in things that aren't available to me. That must be where the secret source is. (laughs) Whereas, in fact, that's just not true. Thank you for joining us for many happy returns. It would be great if you could leave us a quick rating or review on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to the show. And do remember to check out pensioncraft.com for all the information about our membership, courses, and investment coaching options. Many Happy Returns is a Pension Craft production, co-hosted and executive produced by Romin Nakiza and Michael Pugh. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes and is not financial advice. We do not provide recommendations or endorse any decision to buy, sell or hold any security. We cannot be held responsible for any actions listeners may take and investors are encouraged to seek independent financial advice.